Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Thanks for engaging with us on the Facebook page. Uh, thanks for the ratings and reviews on iTunes as well. I appreciate all of that. Lots to talk about here. We are getting into sort of the peak racing season. A lot of the targets that people set up for all of 2017 are going to be coming up over the course of the next couple of months. I myself, I'm less than five weeks now away from my big target, the Chicago Marathon, which is on October 8th. Uh, the Ironman 70.3 World Championships are this weekend, as a matter of fact, up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, not too far away from where we are right now. Um, the New York City Marathon is a couple of months away. Kona is only about, uh, well, it's right at the same time as the Chicago Marathon, uh, a little bit less than five weeks away. Ironman Florida, Ironman Chattanooga, uh, Ironman Wisconsin, all sorts of great things coming up here over the course of the next short while. So um, I uh, hope that your training is going well. Hope that the weather's cooling off wherever you are um, and that you are starting to get ready for your race. Um, I... The topic that we're going to be discussing tonight, it grew out of a couple of conversations on uh, the ITL Athletes Facebook page, and I'll tell you more about that in just a minute here, but we are going to be talking about sort of final race prep and uh, and how different race day can be from your training days um, if, of course, you approach your race in the, in the right fashion. Uh, before we do that, though, I do want to mention a couple of quick pieces of news. Um, one of them I shared on the... Uh, uh, most pleasant exhaustion Facebook page, and it got a lot of attention. Um, and that was that there was a new record set um, in the Deca Ironman. Um, it was set by Alexander Mixner. She's an Austrian woman. She's 46 years old. Um, and a Deca Ironman, as you can imagine, is 10 Ironmans. Deca 10, 10 Ironmans. Um, now, there's two ways you can go about this. There's the Deca Continuous, which means that you would do all the swimming, then all the running, and then all or all the swimming, all the cycling, then all the running. Um, and then there's there's Another way you would go about it would be to do one Ironman a day, essentially for 10 days in a row. Now, both of them are obviously enormous challenges, but they're very different challenges from one another. Um, and what Alexander Mixner did, uh, the Austrian, 46 years old, um, is is uh, the Deca Continuous Ironman and set a new record for it. Um, the time, you know, it was two, 244 hours, 55 minutes, and 34 seconds. Uh, I initially wrote down 35 seconds, and I went back and double-checked, and it was 34 seconds. Definitely don't want to short her that one second where she was leaning for the tape there at the end of 244 hours of work. Um, but you've seen 140.6 stickers on the backs of cars. She did uh, 1406.0. Um, and so she did 10 times the distance. And of course, she's, the math is pretty simple. Rather than a 2.4 mile swim, she did a 24 mile swim. And then of course, she went into transition and, and, and got on her bike. And rather than doing 112 miles, uh, she did 1,120 miles. Um, and went into T2 after that, transitioned into her run clothing, um, and, and rather than running merely 26.2 miles, she ran 262 miles, um, all kind of one after the other. Now, needless to say, she took breaks along the way, and sometimes some pretty long breaks. Uh, she didn't go 10 days. I mean, if you do the math, 24 hours a day, 245 hours, basically. Um, that's more than 10 days from the start to the finish there. Uh, she took breaks. Um, and, and of course, during some of those breaks, she would have slept um, for a couple of hours, a few hours at a time. But the clock was continuously ticking from the time the starting gun went off until the finish. Um, and so any breaks that she took, any sleeping that she did, was ultimately going to be added to her finish time. So she tried to keep that to a minimum. Now, 
it should be said this sort of thing of of starting the clock and doing an ultra event and not sleeping or trying to sleep as little as you can because you know that's slowing down your overall time. Um, it's not foreign to her. She actually did Ram Race Across America uh, just this past summer in 2017 as a soloist, uh, which means that she went all the way from Oceanside, California to Annapolis, Maryland, 3,082 miles. Um, over the course of 12 days, 4 hours, and 35 minutes. Race Across America doesn't do seconds. So four hours, uh, 12 days, 4 hours, and 35 minutes. She was a second-place overall finisher behind the amazing, indomitable Sarah Cooper. Um, so she is certainly no, no newcomer to this sort of thing, nor would you expect her to be uh, since she's setting a record here in the deck of Ironman. Um, you know, it's interesting because a couple of folks, I you know, there was a lot of likes and 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 wow emojis and that sort of thing as when I posted on the page. But there was a couple of people that really kind of thought it was sort of crazy. Um, and and for me, I've never really felt that way about ultra events. Um, I've always felt like it's kind of what's next. I, I feel like the whole endurance endeavor. The reason why we do it is because we're always looking for the next level. We're always looking to improve ourselves. Um, And in the process of improving ourselves as athletes, as reaching that next level, it also happens that we improve ourselves as people. Um, And so I think that, that endurance sports is about what's next, what's next, what's next, reaching out for that next big thing. Um, And so to me, some people try and go faster. Um, Some people say, okay, well, I've broken 25 minutes for a 5K. Now I want to break 23. Now I want to break 21. Now I want to break 20. Now I want to break 16, whatever it happens to be. You're striving to go faster and faster and faster. Um, Rather, Alexander Mexner, even though she does clearly go fast, as fast as anybody's ever done it, um, for her it's also about going longer. It's like, okay, well, I've done one Ironman, and I crossed the finish line, and I felt okay. Um, Let's do two. Let's do three times the distance, five times the distance, and now she's gotten to ten times the distance. Um, I met a guy before named Wayne Kurtz who did a triple deca Ironman. That would be 30 times the Ironman distance. Now, he did it in the other fashion. He didn't do it continuous, but he did an Ironman a day for 30 days in a row. Imagine a month of doing Ironmans, um, and that's exactly what he did um, because he wanted to test himself, wanted to see if he could do it. He wanted to prepare for it and go on that journey of, of self-discovery and self-betterment. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for people who do ultra stuff. Um, and this is born, by the way, out of my own personal experience. Uh, my wife crossed the finish line of Ironman Cozumel, which was my first Ironman, in November of 2011. Uh, and she had done well. She had PR'd. Um, she did a time that many people, men and women, would find really, really respectful, uh, respectable. And, and she said, you know what? I could give a little bit more than that. I feel like I had more when I crossed the finish line. I wasn't drained. This is her fourth Ironman in 18 months, by the way. Um, and, and I said, well, if that's the case, you go faster or you go farther. And she opted to go farther. Um, and she ended up doing a double Ironman that following February and then got sucked into doing a Ram eight-person team and then ultimately uh, set a world record doing the Ram two-person team, two-female team, along with Daniel Grable. So... Um, so I, I have a great deal of, of respect for the amount of work and the amount of dedication uh, that it takes to do that sort of thing. And again, to me, it falls right in line with what endurance sports are all about, going for that next big thing. Now, if you prefer people who go faster than rather going sh- rather than going longer, uh, you might have seen the other piece of news I was going to mention here at the outset, uh, and that was that there's a new 5K world record for 16-year-olds. 
that was set just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a Norwegian guy named Jacob Ingvertsen, who's 16 years old, uh, ran 13.35 for 5K. Um, now, I'll spare you the math. That's about 65 seconds per lap for 12 and a half laps on the track. Uh, it's about 4.20 per mile pace uh, that he ran for 3.1 miles there as a 16-year-old. Um, he crushed the old record. The old record was 13.45. Um, and he did it, by the way, at the Norwegian National Track Championships. And not only did he do the 5,000 or the 5K there and win and set a new world record for 16-year-olds, but he also won the 1,500 and the 3,000-meter steeplechase, and he took home a bronze in the 800 meters. And so you're talking about somebody with an incredibly wide range. Um, just this year alone, uh, he's run an 800 and 149, a half mile and 149. He's run a 1500 uh, and 339. He's run a mile and 356. Um, he's the youngest person, by the way, ever to break four minutes for the mile. Uh, he did a 3,000 meter steeplechase in 826, which takes my word for it, is even more stunning than a 1335 for a 5K. And then, of course, as I said, he did the 5,000 in 1335. Now, let's be fair. He's going to be 17 years old in only a couple of weeks here. So he's almost 17. Um, but for a 16-year-old to put up those sorts of marks, um, well, obviously, it's unprecedented. So um, if you don't appreciate what Alexander Mexner did, by all means, appreciate what Jacob Ingbrigtsen has done over the course of the last little while. Um, one other thing um, that, that undoubtedly you've seen, everybody's super excited because the season is on, is the season four Grand Tour Racing. Uh, and the final Grand Tour of the year, uh, the Vuelta a España is going on right now. Uh, Chris Froome is currently in the lead. There's only a few stages left here. He looks almost unassailable. He looks as if he's going to be able to take this home after having won uh, the Tour de France. It's going to be the first time anybody's won two Grand Tours in a single year uh, in a little while here. Um, now, you can learn a lot from watching Grand Tours, um, and there's a lot of takeaways about cycling and about cycling etiquette and, and also just about uh, uh, gear and fueling and all that sort of thing uh, that you can learn just from watching the pros. Um, but one of the big things that, that uh, I've been struck by in watching this uh, has to do with fatigue. Um, now, if you talk to most high-level coaches, um, be they college coaches, Olympic coaches, professional coaches, etc., most high-level coaches, they will tell you that you pretty much can only peak for about one event a year. Really and truly, you need to say, okay, this is my one big event every single year, and this is what I'm going to do, be it the Olympics or be it the NCAA championships or be it Ironman Chattanooga, you know, whatever it happens to be. You can really only do one big peak a year. Now, most people try and do two, maybe try and squeeze in a third, but, but if they have coaches, their coaches are probably smart enough to say, okay, really we're only doing one, and this is sort of our, our other kind of focus race, but really that other kind of focus race is in service of this, this bigger goal. Um, folks who try and really, really perform at their absolute best more than once a year um, generally are disappointed. It's an extremely, extremely difficult thing to do. Um, and I'm thinking about that a lot as I'm watching the Vuelta here, um, because Chris Froome really just barely won the Tour de France. Um, he didn't win a single stage during the Tour de France, and a lot of people felt like he looked unimpressive. It made for a super exciting race. He only ended up winning by a couple of minutes, and it was close right down until the very end. Um, but because of that, he is now not totally drained, and he's able to, to be able to do well and ultimately win the second Grand Tour as well. And so it suggests to me that Froome actually may have held back a little bit, or he may not have gone into the Tour de France in completely 100% his best shape 
Um, and he's only just now starting to read his best shape here towards the end of the Volta Espana. Um, and that's he looks much stronger now, and he's having a much stronger race now, uh, really, than he did during the tour. Um, contrast that with some other people who rode the tour that are now riding the Vuelta. They're tired. Um, and really, even within the first week of the Vuelta, all those guys who also rode the tour, they looked tired, and they fell out of contention, and they and they were never really competing for the title the way that Chris Froome is. So um, so that's one of my big takeaways as I've been watching the Vuelta is, is, yeah, you can really only do one big, huge peak, and that's actually being proven by something that may, at the outset, uh, from the outside, appear to, to be disproving that. Um, one other kind of quick thing I want to talk about here um, is a conversation on my Facebook wall. Now, now, a bunch of folks who listen to this are folks that I know. I realize that. And so a lot of them are friends of mine on Facebook, and that's great. Um, if you're not a friend of mine on Facebook, then you might not have seen this. But just kind of a big, quick thing. Um, uh, a, an athlete that, that um, is an ITL athlete that comes to the track workout and the trail runs that I coach on Tuesdays and Saturdays or Sundays, respectively, um, she posted up a conversation or about a conversation that she was having with uh, with one of her friends who's also a triathlete about transition tra- season training. Now, I don't refer to it as the off-season. I refer to it as the transition season. That's a whole other other conversation. But um, but she, she basically said, hey, I've heard that you don't have to swim during the transition season. Is that true? Um, and then a few other people kind of chimed in, and then somebody else chimed in and said, yeah, well, actually, I've always found that cycling, and take a lot of time off cycling, and, and I'm okay doing that, da 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 and, and so a lot of, of, of really good conversation went on there about people with, with uh, different ideas about how best to use your transition season, how best to use those winter months when you're not racing as much, um, but you want to still try and strengthen your performances that will be coming up during the latter parts of the year. Um, and as I looked at what the various things people said was, um, I, I really kind of ultimately came away with two big takeaways. Um, one, whatever you do during the transition season, and I realize that people are still have their biggest goals in front of them here, but your transition season is, you know, a couple of months away at this point, so, so it's, it's rapidly coming along. It needs to be personal to you. Um, if you need to improve your swim stroke, then you shouldn't be taking the winter off of swimming. Um, if you need to improve your running, if you need to improve your cycling, you shouldn't be taking those things off um, thinking that, that that's what you, you, you should do and that's what should be done during the transition season, uh, during those winter months. Um, I desperately needed to improve my swim when I first became a triathlete um, and so there was, there was no space for me to, to take months and months off from swimming. I would have liked to. I would have wanted to take the months off. If somebody had said, hey, George, guess what? You don't have to swim for three months. I would have said, fantastic. No swimming for me. Um, and, and there's a degree to which I did that anyway. Um, um, but you need, to work on, uh, you need to work on the things that are particular to you uh, during that transition season. And that kind of leads into the second thing. Um, you also need to objectively assess it. Um, and this is, of course, where a coach can help you out. Um, um, but if better performance is your goal, you need to make an objective assessment of what it is that you need to be doing. Um, it's really easy, as I'm saying, to jump on a bandwagon saying, oh, no swimming during, this, during, during the off-season? Fantastic. I really don't like swimming. Wait, I don't have to ride my bike when it's cold outside? Really good news here because I really don't like riding my bike when it's outside. Oh, I don't have to run during the off-season? That's great news. I don't have to lift weights. I don't have to stretch. I don't have to do core work. There's all sorts of different bandwagons and all sorts of different things you can find that people will say that you don't need to do during the transition season. It's personal to every individual, 
and you need to objectively assess what it is that you need to be doing. Um, and by objectively assessing it, that means that you may ultimately come to a conclusion that you need to do something that you might not really want to be doing during the transition season. Um, my, one of my former coaches used to say, and, and this kind of ultimately kind of boiled down for me, um, that you should work on two, if you're a triathlete, you should work on two things during the transition season. Um, one of them is what you most need to do, and the other one is what you most enjoy doing. Um, and so but that goes for individual sports as well. If you're a runner and you need to do some yoga, that's a good thing to work on during the offseason. But then also do something that you enjoy. If you like running on trails, make sure all your runs are on trails during the offseason, um, during the transition season. So what you need and what you most enjoy um, as you're going into the transition season. All right. So speaking of posts on Facebook, today's topic grew out of a different post on Facebook specifically. Um, I wrote about an athlete that I coach who had just spent uh, a week in Chicago. Um, now, in Georgia here, in the Atlanta area, and a lot of other places around the United States, it's been, you know, not a terrible summer, not as bad as the last summer was, but it's hot and it's humid here during the summer. Um, and he's been training for the Berlin Marathon, which is only two weeks away at this point, or two weeks from this weekend. Um, and he's been doing some really good training, but he's been nervous about hitting his goal because so much of his training stuff um, has just been harder than he felt like it should be. Like he would go out and run his goal marathon pace for a run or for a workout, and he'd finish it and he'd say, wow, I really don't know how I'm going to run 26.2 miles at this pace, at this speed. Um, and I think we've all had that feeling at one point or another in our training, particularly in our summer training. Um, and so I wrote up on Facebook on the ITL Athletes page. I put, have you been training for a fall marathon on hilly courses in the Georgia heat and you're wondering how you're ever going to be able to run a marathon at your goal pace given how slowly you've been forced to run your long runs and marathon specific workouts? I'm about 80% through with a blog on this topic, but in the meantime, at the risk of putting him on the spot, ask Chris what it's like to run in Chicago this week after having trained for the Berlin Marathon here in Georgia for the past three months. Um, and a lot of people responded to it. And Chris, the athlete that I'm talking about that's training for Berlin, who was nervous about his goal, actually wrote back and said it was almost spiritual. Um, and and Chris is a pretty reserved guy. He wrote me probably the most effusive training peaks note that I've ever seen about how excited he was about Berlin after having gotten to train in Chicago where it was about 25 degrees cooler and flat um, for just a few days. Um, as I continued to talk about this, as this conversation continued to develop on the ITL Athletes page, a few people said, well, rather than doing the blog that you're 80% done with, uh, can you record a podcast on it instead? And so that's this is the result. Um, now, I, I found as I started doing more and more research for it um, that – there's lots of different ways that it kind of spiral off, and there's a thousand different reasons why you're going to be faster on race day than you are in training, uh, assuming that you're training correctly. Um, and so, uh, so, so it did end up taking me about a week longer to prepare and record it, but the, here it is. Um, so, a few different reasons why you're going to run faster on race day, um, and I, I'm just going to kind of go through them one by one here. Um, first one, and undoubtedly the biggest one, I believe, is accumulated fatigue. Um, accumulated fatigue is the name of the game in endurance training. Um, the whole thing that we're trying to do is to accumulate fatigue over the course of several days and to do workouts on fatigued legs and on a fatigued body and on a glycogen depleted system and on a slightly dehydrated system in order to prepare you for the rigors of the latter part of your race. That's how it works. That's the name of the game, especially as the event gets longer. Nobody who's ever doing a marathon 
should be running 26.6 miles in practice. Nobody does that. Um, You might run 26 miles in a day or over the course of a weekend, but you shouldn't be doing 26 miles in a single run. Um, They they don't need to be at, at, at marathon pace. You can do pieces at marathon pace, but they certainly don't need to run the entire event uh, when you're marathon training. Likewise, I mean, consider Alexander Minxner, who we were talking about before, the Austrian who did the DECA Ironman. Do you think she trained for the DECA Ironman by doing multiple DECA Ironmans? Of course not. That's not how it works. She trained by doing RAM. <laughs> but, um, but no, but she didn't train by doing RAM by doing multiple 3,000-mile rides. This is not how it works. Rather, she accumulated fatigue and did long workouts on a tired body. Um, so... A side note, by the way, on long runs of marathons, I see people all the time who are, oh, I'm going to go to 18 miles, then 20 miles, then 22 miles, then 24 miles, and then I'm going to do the race the next weekend. Um, They don't need to be that long uh, because of accumulated fatigue. Um, I told an athlete recently, and this is borrowed from Hanson's, um, a popular coaching group out of Michigan. Um, Hanson's, the longest run they say that anybody needs to do, anybody not just their elite runners, anybody needs to do in getting ready for a marathon is 16 miles. And they always say, don't think about it 16 miles as the first 16 miles of your marathon. Think of it as the last 16 miles. Everything else you did that week prior to your long run, that was the first 10 to 15 miles of the marathon. And then the last 16 miles is what it is that you're doing in your long run Um, because you're carrying fatigue into it. That's the whole point. You're carrying fatigue into your long run, and then you build endurance on top of it. Number two, they should be slow. A lot of people think that, oh, if I'm going to run a marathon at eight-minute pace, and that means I need to go out and I need to run all my long runs at eight-minute pace, or even maybe a little bit faster. No, no, you don't. Um, The whole purpose of doing a long run and preparing for a marathon is to train endurance, and endurance is best trained at a slow pace. Um, Yes, you want to run your marathon fast, but you train that fast part in other workouts that you do throughout the course of the week. If you think about marathon training or Ironman training or any sort of training, um, what you're doing is you're building all these various pieces, and then you bring together the pieces one time, and that one time is on race day. Um, And so you don't need to be going out and mimicking your marathon every weekend by running marathon pace for 24 miles. Um, That's just going to beat you up, and ultimately you're not going to be able to recover in time. So... Back to accumulated fatigue. Three dimensions of accumulated fatigue. There's one, there's mental fatigue. Uh, two, there's actually glycogen depletion. Um, and three, there's fluids. Um, and the way that you deal with all of these things, and I don't want to go into each one of them, but the way to deal with all three th- these things is, is by tapering. Um, and a well-executed taper can get you a whole lot of performance gains when it comes on that day. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots of studies of this. Um, on, in studies specifically with runners, um, the benefit is generally on the order of about uh, 2 to 4%. Um, and that's 3.5 to 7 minutes for a 3-hour marathon, which is a lot. Um, that's three to six minutes for somebody who's doing a 2.30 marathon. And I can tell you, as somebody who's looking to run around 2.30 in Chicago, three to six minutes is the difference between me being happy with my race and not being happy with my race. If I miss my goal by three minutes, I'm going to still be kind of happy with my race, but a little bit disappointed. If I miss it by six minutes, I'm going to be unhappy with my race. Um, And so I literally can get that six minutes by having a well-executed taper. Swimmers 
who reduced their training from an average of 10,000 yards per, per day down to only 3,200 yards per day over a 15-day period showed no loss of VO2 max or endurance performance. And more importantly, in, a, in that study that I just mentioned, the swimmer showed an average improvement of performance of 35 to 3.7% as a result of the reduced training. So again, it's counterintuitive. You would think that, oh, I'm losing fitness if I back off in the last two weeks for a race. No, all the research shows the opposite. You're improving your performance. Um, Shepley and others in 1992, they took nine runners, and this is my favorite one. They took nine runners, and they had three different types of tapers, uh, this big study in 1992. They did a high-intensity, low-volume taper. They did a low-intensity, moderate-volume taper. Um, or they did just sort of a rest-only taper where they just you know, took time off. Um, nine runners, three different types of tapers. Now, interestingly, they did. They had all nine runners do all three different types of taper. They basically had them train for four weeks and then they tapered them for a week. And then they trained for four weeks and tapered them for a week. And then trained for four weeks and tapered them for a week. So they got these nine guys to commit to to um, you know almost fifteen weeks worth of training with three different types of tapers. Um, now, the way that they they did it is they actually had them run mile pace until they couldn't run it anymore, and so they had them run you know a really 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 fast pace all the way to to exhaustion. And they took their measurements along the way. They measured their max VO2, their maximal oxygen uptake. They measured their strength and the contractile properties of their quadriceps, so how strong their quads were actually able to contract there. Um, they measured their muscle glycogen concentration. Um, and so glycogen, again, like I said, that's one of the dimensions of, of accumulated fatigue. But glycogen is one of two main fuels along with fat, with, with a fat um, that you use when you're running or engaging in, 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 uh, uh, in endurance activities. Um, and glycogen is the one that fuels the high-end activity. Uh, fat kind of fuels the low-end activity. And so measuring glycogen concentration was a big part of it as well. And this is at the end of the test. Um, they also measured what they called citrate synthase activity, um, and that's commonly used as an indicator for the presence of intact mitochondria. Um, and so the more mitochondria you have, the better you're able going to, to, to be able to process ATP uh, and create energy inside your cells. Um, and then they also looked at their total blood and their total red cell, uh, cell volume, uh, which of course would be an indicator of your, your uh, oxygen carrying capacity. Now, they found out your max VO2 was unaffected by any of the tapers. Not a surprise there. Max VO2 is one of those things that, that is pretty much set genetically, and, and your goal when you're training is to get and perform at as close to your max VO2 as you possibly can, not necessarily to increase your max VO2. And so, um, and so that's not really a surprise. Their running time to fatigue was increased by 22% after the high-intensity taper, 22% after the high-intensity taper, and 6% with the low-intensity taper. Um, it actually decreased after the running-only taper. And so if you think, oh, I'm going to lose all my fitness if I taper. Yeah, you're right if you literally don't do anything for, for a week. If you just sit around and be like, all right, my race is coming up, and you don't do anything, yeah, you're going to lose about 3%, at least according to this study. Um, but if you do a taper that's low intensity, moderate volume, and so you kind of just keep on doing what you're doing, but take maybe 10 to 20% off of all your stuff, you're still going to gain about 6%. But if you drop your uh, volume down by 60, 70, 80% and keep the intensity in there, so you run like some minute repeats and things like that, their running time fatigue increased by 22%. That's an astounding improvement um, just by tapering. 
Um, the citrate synthase activity increased significantly with the high intensity taper and actually decreased significantly with the, uh, with the rest only taper. So again, a reason to include some high intensity in there and not to just sit around for, for a week or more. Uh, their muscle glycogen concentration increased significantly after both the uh, rest only taper and the high intensity taper. And so if you think you're going to be running out of your high end fuel by, by doing these repeats, these minute repeats at the end, and you shouldn't be running super long marathon pace, you know, 30 minute, 40 minute, 60 minute runs immediately prior to the marathon. But but if you think you're going to be doing short burst, high intensity stuff, and you're going to lose all your glycogen, not having fuel for the race, no. Um, their glycogen concentration increased significantly after that high intensity taper, but not after the, the mid volume one. Uh, their strength increased after all three tapers. So they were literally able to, to contract their muscles more powerfully after all three of the different types of tapers. Um, and their total blood volume increased significantly after the high-intensity taper, and it decreased after the, the rest-only taper. So the big takeaway, doing a taper where you drastically cut the volume of your training, but you maintain some intensity in there over the course of that last week, will dramatically improve your performance on race day. Um and, and that's you're simply going to be in a different physiological place when you tow the line of your starting, uh, uh, the starting line of your race, of your target race, after you've tapered. You're even going to be in a much better place than you were for your tune-up races because even your tune-up races, you didn't really taper for those the way you're going to taper for your big target race. You're going to be in a better place as far as your citrate synthase activity. You're going to be in a better place as far as your muscle glycogen. You're going to have more strength and contractile properties in your quadriceps. Um, and, and you're going to have more blood and more red blood cells to actually draw upon. Um, and, and that alone is going to improve your performance significantly by a several minutes. Now, a final note here on tapering. Tapering is kind of tricky, um, and there is a little bit of an art to it, and there is a little bit of individualization to it. Um, and the reason why is because when you start to taper, you can kind of fall out of your routine a little bit. The athletes that I coach know that I'm a big fan of routine. I'm always about like, let's find the routine, let's get this routine, let's establish the routine. Um, and you kind of fall out of your routine. I take a single day off. Personally, as an athlete, I take a single day off and I start thinking, oh, well, I can just kind of eat whatever I want to do. Just after a single day off, I'm like, oh, well, I'm not running today so I can have all these cookies and ice cream. No, I can't do that. I can't get out of that routine. Um, and so, you know, imagine a week of, of taking a little bit of time off, even though you're still running a little bit, so even though you're still including that high intensity in there, you start to think, oh, well, I, you know, I, don't, I can, I can kind of eat whatever I want to eat. And, oh, well, you know, I can, I can sleep a little bit later, and then you end up staying up later, then you get your night and day mixed up, and suddenly you can't really sleep all that well. Uh, you end up letting your work or your family kind of take over your time that you formerly had been devoting to training and stuff like that. Um, and so you end up getting out of the routine. Uh, some people talk about how they might feel flat um, as a result of tapering, and that's you know that's legit. I felt that way before too. A lot of people just simply lose confidence if they take too much time off in the week before a race. They they, they end up losing all their confidence. Um, I submit these are mental and logistical issues. Um, that doesn't mean they're not important. That doesn't mean they're not real. That doesn't mean that that, that you shouldn't deal with them. But what I am saying is that you can take a super long taper. Tapers can be, according to studies, believe it or not, up to seven weeks long. Now, I normally put them for the athletes that I coach and for myself at about 10 days um, because all of these things. Physically, they could be much, much longer than that if I wanted them to. But I found that if, if we go for more than about 10 days, my athletes kind of start falling apart mentally and, and their routines go away and... and 
they start feeling they're gaining weight and they feel flat and their sleeping gets all off and everything else like that. And so, so I normally put them at about 10 days, but, but they could be physically much longer than that without losing any sort of, of, uh, of fitness. So keep that in mind as you are approaching your big race here over the course of the next few weeks that you want to make sure that you include some sort of very low volume but very high intensity taper as you're getting ready for your big target race. The second thing that's going to make your target race faster is that the course that you're going to be running on or the course that you're going to be racing on if you're doing triathlon is likely going to be flatter than the courses on which you train. Um, now, I'm doing the Chicago Marathon. It's known to be a flat, fast course. The London Marathon, flat, fast course. Ironman Florida, flat, fast course. Um, most courses are flatter than the courses on which we train, particularly if you come from a hilly area. Um, the Atlanta area is a very hilly area, and so we end up spending all of our runs and all of our rides going up and down hills, and that's fine. That's good. That makes you strong. That makes you powerful, um, but it also slows you down. And when you actually get out on course, it's likely going to be a flatter course than the ones you experience. So how much does a hilly course slow you down? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, there's a couple of different rules of thumb that people go by. I strongly prefer the, the rule of a guy named Jack Daniels. Um, Jack Daniels, no, not the whiskey guy, but he's a famous uh, exercise physiologist and said, uh, Jack Daniels' rule of thumb is that for every percent gradient of in, incline, so every percent gradient going uphill, will slow you by about 12 to 15 seconds per mile. And so literally, if you go up 1% for a mile, and 1%, by the way, you won't even really notice that, hardly. Uh, for a mile, that's going to slow you down about 12 or 15 seconds over the course of that mile. If you go up a 2% grade over the course of a mile, that's going to slow you down about 25 or 30 seconds over the course of that mile. Now, you would notice a 2% grade, but still, you wouldn't really consider it to be all that steep of a hill. Um, and of course, if you can kind of kind of slice it up a little bit, and so if you have like a mile's worth or a half mile's worth of 1% grades, that would slow you down about 6 to 8 seconds over the course of that mile. But then he also says every percent gradient of decline going downhill will aid you by about 8 seconds per mile. And so if you have a downhill of 1% over the course of a mile, that's going to give you about 8 seconds faster on that mile. Now, the thing that should stand out to you when I say that is that you you slow down more going uphill than you speed up going downhill. Yes. And that is very much what I have found in my own experience, that, that uphills slow you down more than downhill speed you up. Now, that's not quite true for everybody. There's some people who are some brilliant downhill runners, um, but, but most people are not going to be able to run downhill fast enough in order to make up for how much it costs them to run uphill. And so if you imagine a course, it's a loop and you have a little bit of uphill, a little bit of downhill, um, you're ultimately going to lose about four to seven seconds um, for each mile of 1% gradient that you, you, that you encounter on that. Now, John Kellogg is another guy um, who uh, is often cited as, as, with his rule of thumb here. Um, he's real famous because of Let'sRun.com. Um, they're kind of his go-to coach on there. He coaches the guys that, that founded that site, particularly one of them named Weldon Johnson. Um, and for his rule, he states that every set, for every 10 feet of elevation change, it alters your time by 1.74 seconds, um, regardless of the horizontal distance covered. Um, and so I, I, dis, I disagree with that. Um, because he says that if you go down that 10 feet, then you get that 1.74 seconds back. Um, and like I said, in my experience, I, I don't think you go downhill as quickly as you go uphill or as your downhills don't make up for going up the uphills. And so I like Jack Daniels formula a little bit more. Um, so 
let's imagine a one mile course, like I said, that gradually goes up about 13 feet in the first quarter mile. That's 1%. And then it goes down 13 feet. Um, and then it flattens out and then it finishes going up 13 more feet. Um, so Daniel would say that you're going to lose about three or four seconds in that first quarter. And then you'd gain about two seconds in that second quarter. Then you'd lose about three or four on that final hill. And your total time is about four to six seconds slow for that mile. Kellogg would say that, that, that you wouldn't lose any time for that mile because you get it all back. Um, I, I, again, I agree with Jack Daniels on that. Um, now, now let's kind of extrapolate that. If that was sort of your, your average mile, or if like every single mile of a marathon was exactly like that for 26.2 miles, um, if it was just like that over the course of the entire 26.2 miles, you'd gain 676 feet over the course, and you'd lose 338 feet over the course. Um, and your time on that course is going to be a total of about one and a half minutes to two minutes slower than a perfectly flat course. Um, and so over time, particularly over the course of something long like a marathon, um, these gains can can become more significant. Let's look specifically at a couple of races. Uh, Chicago, the race I'm running. Of course, I'm going to look at that one. Uh, Chicago Marathon is known as a fairly flat course. Nonetheless, it still has 461 feet of gain, 461 feet of going uphill. And you lose all of that because it basically ends back in the same place. Now, again, Kellogg would say, oh, well, it's a wash. You know, you, you, you would gain some, you lose some, and, and it all works out. Daniels would, however, say on balance, you're going to lose about four seconds per mile and you're going to get about three seconds of that back. And so in all, you're going to be about one second slow per mile over a perfectly flat course. It's going to be about 26 seconds slower than a perfectly flat course. Not bad. Um, and that's the reason why so many world records have been set at Chicago after all. Um, it's about as close as you can get one second per mile to being perfectly flat, as a matter of fact. Contrast that with New York City Marathon. New York City Marathon has, according to my Garmin last year, 1,132 feet of gain and 1,138 feet of loss. Again, Kellogg would say that's actually a touch faster than Chicago because you end up going downhill some. Um, Daniels, though, would say you'd lose about 2 minutes to 2.30 over that course if you calculate out all the ups and downs uh, over a perfectly flat course. And so on balance then... Um, you end up getting New York is about a minute and a half to two minutes slower as a course than Chicago is. Now, the point of all this is to say that you probably live in a much hillier area than both of these places. You probably get a lot more climbing than this on your runs. And so if you're looking at your runs, you're like, wow, I, I can't see how I'm going to be able to maintain a pace anything faster than this for, for 26.2 miles. Setting aside accumulated fatigue, which we already talked about, setting aside the taper, which we already talked about, you probably are going up and down hills a whole lot more on your runs. I did a run a couple days ago. It was 18.4 miles. Um, 18.4 miles, I climbed 1,900 feet. Um, so that's literally more than four times the amount of gain during the entire Chicago Marathon. Even the Chicago Marathon is eight miles longer than that. Um, four times as much going uphill. Um I lost about 7 to 13 seconds per mile because of all of that going up on hill. Um, and that means over the course of that entire run, I lost about 2.20 or up to about 4 minutes worth of time just because of going up and down all of those hills over the course of 18.4 miles. If you extend that out to 26 miles, that's about 6 minutes or so that I would have lost just because my horse is so much hillier than the course of the Chicago Marathon. Um, it was also on trails, by the way, which is responsible for, I would say, another 10 to 20 seconds per mile. Um, so 10 to 20 seconds per mile as a result of, of being on trails. Um, another 
13 seconds per mile or so as a result of, of, of being uh, uh, so, so much hillier. That's 30 seconds right there that I'm going to be running slower on my regular long run course than I will be running in Chicago, even if everything else was exactly the same. My accumulated fatigue was exactly the same. The temperature was about exactly the same, all that stuff. My effort level was exactly the same, and none of those things are exactly the same. I'd be losing 33 seconds, even if I made everything else all the same. Um, now, a couple other kind of quick side notes here on uh, on on grades. Uh, both Training Peaks and Strava, um, they both have what they call normalized grade pace, um, and that's essentially how much effort they think it took. If you ran up a lot of hills in a particular mile, they will say, okay, well, this is what the effort was for that. This is how fast that mile would have been had it been on flat ground. Um, that's imperfect, but it's good. Um, Strava gave me about 13 seconds per mile. Training Peak gave me about 11 seconds per mile on that 18.4 mile that mile run that I was just talking about. And like I said, I calculated using Daniels, it would be about 7 to 13 seconds per mile. And so both of those are pretty good measures. Um, if you want just a quick way of looking at how much running up and down hills is slowing you down on your runs. Second kind of side note on this. Um, a lot of people think you need to train solely on flats if you're doing a flat race. Uh, they think that, that, oh, I'm doing the Chicago Marathon, the Berlin Marathon, which is so, so, so flat. Um, and so all I ever need to do is run on flats. That's incorrect. Um, uh, running hills makes you a stronger person. It makes you stronger aerobically. It makes you stronger muscularly. And ultimately, you can use that aerobic power and that muscular power uh, to power you on the flats. Um, people who say, oh, well, I'm training on the flats because I'm getting ready for a flat race, they're just looking to avoid hills. Um, now, that being said, if you're injured, particularly if you have like an Achilles injury like I've been struggling with, um, then yeah, you might want to seek out some flat stuff because running up and down hills can, can hurt your feet and hurt your Achilles a little bit more. I've been doing two of my runs right now a week on a treadmill on 0.0, which is stunningly boring and very, very easy um, because I'm trying to get in the aerobic fitness and the aerobic conditioning uh, without putting as, as much stress on my Achilles as I would be getting if I was running up and down hills. Um, but you shouldn't be avoiding hills just because you're training for a flat race. Um, third thing, third side note on this. There was a study in 2000 um, with runners, with triathletes, and with cross-country skiers um, that found when they were running up a steep hill, um, it was VO2 max that actually mattered most. And what this means is that it's the strongest athletes, the fittest athletes that ultimately are going to be able to run the best, whether it's on flats or whether it's on uphill. Um, and so something to keep in mind if you're training for a hilly race. Um, and then the last thing to say about this is that there was a 2005 study um, that showed that, that downhill running, um, something we all knew, downhill running is actually much tougher on your body than uphill running is. Um, that it beats you up more to run downhill than it does to run uphill. Uh, I was standing on the starting line of the New York City Marathon last year, and this guy I was standing next to looked really nervous. And I said, have you run this race before? And he said, yeah. Uh, and I said, you look nervous? He said, yeah. Uh, and I said, is it because of the hills? He said, no, it's because of the downhills. Um, and he was nervous about the downhills and how much they were going to beat him up during that race. Um, when I've dealt with injured runners in the past, uh, sometimes I've had them do hill repeats, but I would have them run up the hill um, and then walk down the hill, and that would be their workout for the day um, because you're lighter on your feet as you run uphill, and you tend to bang really, really hard as you're coming downhill. Um, that's borne out by that 2005 study that I just mentioned. Um, third reason why you're going to go faster on race day is the weather. Um, most of the fastest races and most of the races that we all target tend to be 
cooler days and tend to be set in places where the weather is cooler and nicer. Um, certainly much nicer than it has been this summer. Now, that's not always true. Um, their Chicago Marathon was canceled in the middle of the race a few years ago because it got so hot during the race itself. Um, the Ironman Chattanooga, which is supposed to be so cool and nice, was deadly hot. Uh, Ironman Coeur d'Alene was deadly hot last year. And so, um, so even races where it's supposed to be cool, they're not always cool, but they tend to be much cooler. And so therefore you tend to be able to go better in all of those places. Um, and so kind of with this, there is some scientific data on this that was kind of interesting that I wanted to mention. Uh, first, there was a study just back in 2012, fairly recent study here, uh, where they analyzed the results of six marathons, the Paris Marathon, London, Berlin, Boston, Chicago, and New York uh, from 2001 to 2010. They looked at every single finisher from all six of those gigantic marathons for 10 years, 2001 to 2010. That means they were looking at the performances of 1,791,972 participants. That is a crap ton of data that they were looking at. Uh, and they also gathered five uh, five factors for each one of these 60 races, the six races over the course of 10 years, 60 races. They looked at the temperature. They looked at the percent humidity. They looked at the dew point in Celsius degrees. Uh, they looked at the atmospheric pressure at sea level. Um, and they looked at the concentration of some pollutants. Um, and ultimately what they found uh, was that air temperature and performance were significantly correlated for everybody. That means that every runner in the race, from the winner to the last place finisher, um, was affected significantly by the air temperature. Now, fascinatingly, they found that the very fastest runners, their optimal temperature was much lower, um, like three degrees Celsius lower than the middle of the pack runners and the and the front quartile runners, the, the first quartile runners, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, but one way or another, the hotter that it was, the more significant performance, uh, everyone's performance was uh, affected. Uh, They found, by the way, that the ideal temperature for most folks was somewhere, for those elite guys, for the elite men in particular, it was like three degrees Celsius, which is like just barely over 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, For elite women, it was around six degrees Celsius. Um, And then for everybody else, it was between about six and seven degrees Celsius. Um, which is cooler than most of us would think. Um, in fact, if I do a quick Google here on six degrees Celsius, I could say six degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit, and I would find out that six degrees in fa- Celsius in Fahrenheit, which is the ideal temperature for everyone in the race, is only about 42 degrees, 42.8 degrees. Um, that would be colder than most of us would probably think. Um, but that's where they ended up finding the best performances. Um, it was right there around 40, 42, 45, certainly no higher than 50 degrees there. Um, humidity was the second parameter that had a high impact on performance. Um, it was significantly correlated with the women front runners and all of the men's performance levels. So for whatever reason, men seem to be more affected, whether they're the first male runner or the last male runner by humidity. Um, and then female runners, women runners, only tended to be uh, affected by the humidity if they were at the very front of the race, if they were in the, in the top 1% of the finishers in the race. Um, and then none of the other things that they measured, the dew point, the atmospheric pressure at sea level, or all the various pollutants, none of the others were really significant in any major way. Uh, one of the pollutants had an effect on the lead males, but that was probably just an outlier in the data. Um, and so none of the others were significant. So again, air temperature, it ended up, being uh, a major performance inhibitor for everybody in the entire race, from the very first male to the very last person in the race. 
Um, now, speaking of humidity, um, there was a 2016 study that analyzed the effect of humidity, um, and they took 11 runners, um, and they had them run steady for 60 minutes, and then they had to run hard to exhaustion after running steady for 60 minutes. Um, and they put them all in a 31 degrees Celsius room, which is hot, by the way. It's 87 degrees Fahrenheit, and so we would consider that to be pretty hot. Um, I certainly would consider that to be hot. Um, but they put it at different humidities, um, uh, five different humidities, 23%, 43%, 52%, 61%, and 71%. Now, 71% humidity, that's a lot of humidity. I submit to you that that would be right nice in Atlanta in July. Uh, so 71% humidity is not really all that high. But anyway, uh, they measured a few things. They measured body temperature, the core temperature, and the skin temperature. Uh, they measured cardiac output, heart rate, stroke volume. Uh, and they found a few different things. Number one, they found significantly higher body temperatures detected during the steady state portion in the 61 and 71% humidity compared to the 23%. So just running not even all that hard, your body temperature got a whole lot higher when the humidity was higher. Even though the air temperature was the same, it was 87 throughout, uh, significantly higher, they said. Uh, the time to exhaustion of the, uh, the, in, the exercise test at the end, and so like I said, they ran steady for 60 minutes and they ran as hard as they could to exhaustion. Uh, the time to exhaustion at the end was significantly reduced at the 61 and 71 when compared to the uh, 23% humidity. Um, and in general, they found that there was more circulatory stress and thermoregulatory issues um, at those higher ones. Um, their bottom line conclusion, they said, this study highlighted that in a warm environment, the range of the prescriptive zone progressively narrows as relative humidity increases, uh, unquote. In other words, there's less room for error uh, in terms of temperature, pace, etc., when humidity is higher. And so humidities just of 61 and 71% significantly affect body temperature and ultimately will affect your performance as well. Um, finally, so we've seen how three things, accumulated fatigue, flatness of the course, the weather, all of those things are going to speed you up by themselves. But then there's all sorts of other kind of miscellaneous things as well. Um, there's cheering. There's adrenaline. Um, there's the fact that probably on race day, you're going to dig deeper and push harder than you have in any of your workouts up to that point. You should. Um, it is, after all, your big target race. Um, and so there's lots of kind of miscellaneous factors as well, things that are more difficult to actually quantify. One of the miscellaneous things that they have quantified, though, that I want to want to finish with here is talking about racing flats. Um, a lot of folks will wear faster shoes during their race, lighter shoes during their race. Um, and there have been some studies on that. There was a University of Colorado study um, in 2012 uh, with 12 runners, and they had them, of course, running on a treadmill. Um, now, they measured their oxygen consumption um, as they had them running on the treadmill. Now, measuring oxygen consumption is basically a measure of your efficiency. The less oxygen you use, the more efficiently you are running um, at a particular pace. And so... What they did actually was sort of interesting. They, they had them run barefoot, and then they uh, put them in a very lightweight shoe, and then they added lead weights on the top of their feet. Um, and they found, you know, and they added, you know, 50 grams, then 100 grams, then 150 grams, and they're adding, just basically making their feet more and more heavy. Um, and they ultimately found that for every 100 grams of increased shoe or foot mass was associated with about a 1% increase in oxygen consumption. And so they're using more oxygen. They're being less efficient for every 100 grams uh, that's added onto their shoes. Now, interestingly, wearing 150-gram shoes, so 5.2 ounces, which is a lightweight racing flat, 
5.2 ounces shoes actually created a 2.1 decrease in oxygen consumption over barefoot people. And so wearing a 5.2 ounce shoe, 150 gram shoe, will actually make you a more efficient runner on race day than running with no shoes at all. But for every 100 grams you add after that, you're going to lose about 1%. So does this mean that you should be wearing uh, 150 gram racing flats in your race? Maybe not. Um, if you've been training in, in lighter shoes, then by all means, wear the lightest shoes that you have, you've been training in and that you're prepared to and that are safe for you to run in during your race uh, because those will, will uh, help you out as well. The point here, though, is that, that that is yet another factor that will play in on race day and, and, of course, will speed you up. So all of these things come together. The fact that you will be reducing your fatigue, the fact that you will be running in nicer weather, the fact that you will be running likely on a flatter course, um, and the fact that you have all these miscellaneous things, be it racing flats or simply cheering, adrenaline, the support of the people around you, um, the will to dig deeper than you've dug during all of your workouts up to that point. All of these things conspire together to make you a whole lot faster on race day. And believe me, as an athlete, I'm counting on it. And there you have the most pleasant exhaustion podcast on race prep. You are going to be faster on race day. I have confidence in you, but more importantly, science has confidence in you. Study after study after study has shown that you will be faster on race day. If you taper, if you take into account all the miscellaneous items, if you wear your lighter shoes, if you, uh, if you go to a place with cooler weather, and of course you end up running on a flatter course. Um, you will be faster on race day um, and you will be poised to do uh, all your goals. Um, thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, you can go to the blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. I'll post on the, uh, the blog um, the, uh, the figure from the study that shows actually the, uh, the specific temperatures at which people perform best in the different groups and marathons. I think it's pretty interesting stuff. And after all, there's 1.7 million subjects in that test. Um, of course, go to our Facebook page as well, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Um, also find ITL Coaching at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash performance. Uh, finally, don't forget about my wife. If you're looking to book travel, um, check her out, facebook.com slash MEV or caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.